Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you. I hope you're doing well today. Um, it's always good to be with you as we study the scriptures together, study the Bible, and um, see, what, see what God has to say to us um, in his word. We're in the Gospel of John now, full-fledged. This is uh, the week, I believe, should be for April 10th, um, John 3 through 7. And so last week, you'll remember, we talked about how we were going to um, talk more about the Gospel of John this week and kind of uh, really kind of give some background information as we go into it. I got to be honest, the Gospel of John is probably my favorite book in the whole Bible. Um, I've said it before, my top three books that I love, I think, are John, Romans, and Genesis, if maybe that surprised you, but Genesis, Romans, and John. Those are to me, and John really is a very unique book. Um, all of the books of the Bible are equally inspired by the Holy Spirit, equally inerrant, equally infallible, um, equally um, given of God. But there are certain books of the Bible like uh, among the prophets, right? We think about Isaiah. Isaiah kind of stands out as a giant mountain peak amongst all the other prophets, but he has a special place because he gives us such wonderful truth. It really is in some ways the gospel according to Isaiah. Um, the book of Psalms is a treasure trove. Um, the book of Genesis is so foundational, important to us. Um, and the book of Romans, right? How many of us have, have learned about the truth of Christianity, how the how the gospel works, so to speak, what sin is, uh, what salvation looks like, um, all of these things. Romans is very has a unique place in it. Well, similarly, amongst the gospels, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we love them, and we don't want to denigrate them, the gospel of John is unique in, in certain ways because it shows us unique, um, it gives us unique statements unique perspectives, unique insights and angles into the person of Jesus Christ, but also into the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, because John here is writing to us and giving us insights into who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is. He talks about all three um, throughout the Gospel of John. And uh, there's just a certain glory and splendor um, that John just radiates uh, forth, I think, and maybe you, maybe you, maybe, uh, and that's totally fine if you don't see that in the Gospel of John. Some I know some others that prefer Luke or Mark or Matthew, and I love those books too. But Mark just kind of has a special place in my own personal heart, and so uh, anyway, I, I hope that um, I hope that you'll enjoy reading it um, because it's such a it's such a great book. Um, a few things to think about the Gospel of John. First of all, it's written by. John, right? And we deduce that um, because it's not explicitly stated in this book that, hey, I'm John and I'm writing this book. But we deduce that, first of all, because of uh, external evidence. We have uh, early church fathers and writers who say John wrote this gospel that we have here. And then additionally, if you look and you read the book, right, we hear about this specific person called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And by deduction and by argument, it seems fairly um, certain, quite probable, that it is John the Apostle who is writing this gospel to us, and uh, who, is the, who is the writer. He was a very close friend, uh, seems to have been really maybe the best friend of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so in a sense, what you're getting here in the Gospel of John is Jesus's best friend, his best earthly friend. And the insights that he saw in his best friend on this earth, um, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he probably wrote this gospel in Ephesus. Uh, John, eventually, right, he seems to have been the longest living of all of the apostles. Um, his brother dies early. James is, is actually executed, uh, I believe it's in Acts like 12. Um, James was executed. His brother, remember, there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee followers of Jesus, and uh, 
James is is killed early on, uh, fairly early on in the in the Christian church's history. So he dies around. Uh, he dies in in Acts chapter twelve. But John, his brother, lives on for quite a while, and eventually is associated with the city of Ephesus. And he probably wrote this gospel from there. <clears throat> he uh, and probably he was writing it for people in Ephesus, but ultimately for believers everywhere, everywhere. And he probably wrote it, and you could look up the arguments for this, but he probably wrote it in the mid-80s to the early 90s. So remember, Paul is executed in like the 60s. Um, I think Peter as well in the 60s. Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. So this is written sometime even you know, potentially at least over a decade and potentially over two decades after the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, John here is writing probably in Ephesus um, later on in life as, a, as an older uh, believer, um, probably something of a respected statesman as well for the, um, you know, one of the, the last of the um, of the apostles in a sense, right? Um, so he's writing this. Now, what, what is the occasion uh, upon which he's writing this. Well, uh, reading in a New Testament introduction I've, uh, book that I have, um, this quote comes from there. They say this, the temple's destruction, the Gentile mission, and Gnostic thought combined as possible occasions for John's gospel. So first of all, they mentioned the temple's destruction. You remember the destruction of the temple that Jesus talks about. We've talked about that in the gospel accounts where Jesus said that Jerusalem would be surrounded, the temple would be destroyed. And that happened in A.D. 70, just as Jesus said it would. Remember, Jesus said, this generation shall not pass away before these things take place. And that probably was a, was a startling thing to hear, that within, their, within a generation, the whole temple of, of Jerusalem, the city, I mean, the, Judaism would go through a traumatic experience um, and, and, and the temple would be gone, and there still is not a temple, right? Um, Jesus prophesied that. And that would have been a very, um, a huge thing to go through, similar to um, the deportment of the Israelites um, in the 500s, whenever, remember in, the, in, the, in BC, in the Old Testament times, remember whenever they were taken to Assyria, but then eventually to Jerusalem fell, and I think it was like 586 and um, BC, and was taken captive and to, but under Babylon, right? <clears throat> and the people were deported. Um, the, the first temple there was destroyed and, and all of these things happened. Solomon's temple's gone and, and the people of God are just, is so shocked. And the question then, right, is how can, what does Jewish faith look like without a temple? And what does the faith of the Old Testament look like without a temple, without sacrifices, and with God's people even outside of the promised land? Because remember, they have to come back to it. It was a traumatic event. And similarly, here, the, it would have been a, a very traumatic event in AD 70 when the, the temple of Herod is destroyed and Jerusalem is, you know, is conquered. And so John here is writing in the aftermath of that. And what we see here is John is pointing out to his readers, Jesus is actually the temple. See, you don't need to go back to that temple because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus fulfills all of the, the ceremonies, and right, John writes about the, the festivals, the Old Testament festivals that Jesus was associated with, um, you know, and Passover and other festivals. Um, uh, I believe John 7, right, where, we, where Jesus is there talking about the water and we talk about the light of the world. Those things were associated with Old Testament holidays, religious ceremonial holidays, and John seems to be highlighting to us and to his readers Look, you don't need to go back to the temple because everything that was destroyed there, we've got so much more in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus at the very beginning of the book says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. And they thought he was talking about the building, but John tells us, no, no, no. He was talking about the temple of his body. Secondly, the Gentile mission is another occasion for writing this, as it is for really in many in many of the books of the Bible, right? So the the gospel is going forth to Gentiles, and how do you explain this? How can we, how can a bunch of Gentiles believe in a Jewish Messiah? And 
we talked about that with Luke's gospel, and there's a similar thing here with John. And you, we perhaps we don't appreciate this um, conundrum that that it, that existed, and and trying to solve this, I'm going to put in air quotes, problem. How do we explain all these Gentiles coming to Christ? And in John's gospel, we read already, right, that he calls people from every nation. He's John emphasizes the fact that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not simply Israel, the world. And he's emphasizing throughout, giving hints. Um, remember, whenever uh, later on he says uh, Jesus um, didn't die simply for the one nation, but for all those who are the children of God everywhere. Remember, he's the good shepherd. And he says, I've got other sheep that are not of this fold. They're not of Israel. He says, I got to bring them also. So what John is pointing out is that all of this flows from the person of Jesus himself. And if we had actually paid attention to Jesus and his works and to who he is and what he brought about, we would have realized Yes, the Gentile mission makes sense. Yes, people from outside of Israel, the the Jews and the Gentiles, both share in Jesus Christ and in what he's done for us. So in that context as well. And then lastly, Gnostic thought. The Gnostic, um, you may have heard of Gnosticism. Um, It's this idea that there is some kind of uh, secret knowledge that you can get Um, some kind of secret insider information. Um, And that was a heresy, and it was kind of a... um there were, there were a number of different ways in which this could take form, um, this idea of secret revelation, but also there was kind of a um, Gnosticism later on, which was kind of starting in John's lifetime and eventually would become more and more uh, after him kind of a bigger deal, and the Christian church had to confront it. And one of the things they would start to deny is, is, is the, the humanity of Jesus, so Jesus, you know, maybe sometimes they would think about him. Oh, he was just kind of like a ghost or a phantom. It only looked like he had flesh. He didn't he wasn't really flesh and blood. It just looked that way because in Gnostic thought, in a sense, um, the flesh is bad and we need to to and I don't know if they would say this exactly, but sometimes like the the, the body is thought of as a prison. Um, and we gotta get rid of it, we gotta escape it. It's all about the soul inwardly. And John here writes and says the true revelation, the true knowledge comes through Christ and he was in the flesh. And notice at the very beginning of his gospel, he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He emphasizes later on in his gospel that whenever they, whenever they, they stabbed Jesus, remember the, they were checking to see if he died, water and blood flowed from his side. And he says, and we've seen it and we know it's true. And later on in his epistles, John will say, if anyone says that Jesus Christ did not come into the flesh, right, they're wrong. And so John here is possibly also emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the God man, not simply God, not simply spirit, but the God man. He became flesh and took to himself our human nature highlighting that that incarnation aspect as well. So those are three things that kind of maybe were in the background as possible things in the background for why John is writing the way he's writing and what he's doing. The temple's destruction, the Gentile mission, and Gnostic thought. Quickly here, the purpose. What is John's purpose? Well, he tells us in John 20, verse 31, what his goal all along has been in writing this book. He says this, beginning in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 30 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John here is giving us all of this information, especially the signs, the things Jesus does, but also his words and everything that he's writing is intended to convince us and to see the certainty that we have in Jesus Christ and to lead us to believe into all that he is for us, to trust in him, to see that these things are true and to believe that they are true for us. So as you're reading through this book, Ask yourself these questions. How do the signs that John writes about, and how is each of this chapter, how are each chapter's uh, words and works of Christ leading me, and how is John writing it in order to lead us to see that Jesus is the Christ? 
How do his words and signs lead us to believe in him? And, and also ask this question. John says that we may have life in him. What does life look like in Jesus? And how do the signs that Jesus gives and shows in his words and his teachings here, how do they show us what that life looks like? Very, very helpful questions, I think, to think about as you're reading through the whole uh, Gospel of John. Real quick, some outlines, uh, an outline, basic outline for you before we dive into this week's readings. Uh, first of all, there's, there's four basic sections to the book. First of all, and I'm stealing this again from a New Testament introduction book that I've got, um, so you know this isn't just Spencer stuff, but um, first of all, an introduction section, verses chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John kind of gives an introduction or a prologue um, to his gospel uh, about the word being made flesh. Then we have the first uh, big, big section is called the Book of Signs. These are various miracles that Jesus performs, right? He changes the water to wine. He um, heals people. He opens the eyes of the blind man, right? He does various miracles culminating in the greatest miracle he performs, which is his resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. So the book of signs, the signs of this Messiah are from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 12. So leading us there. So you can basically think of the second half of chapter one, all the way through chapter 12 are the book of signs. And remember, John says these signs are written. If we were to record all the signs that Jesus did, um, the book, the world could not contain the books that would be written. The second major book here is the book of exaltation, which goes from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 20. So this contains in, in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus's farewell discourse, um, talking, he, he washes their feet, he pours his life and speaks to them there. In chapters 18 through 19, it contains his suffering, his betrayal, arrest, trial, suffering, crucifixion, burial, um, a fascinating interaction with him and Pilate. And then chapter 20 is Jesus's resurrection, the appearances, and his commissioning of the disciples. And then there's a, so just as we had an introduction or a, or a prologue uh, to lead up to the gospel, so in the, at the tail end of chapter 21, we have an interesting epilogue about kind of showing the, uh, as this, this, this outline says, the complementary roles of Peter and the beloved disciple. And it's, it's a beautiful story because we see here the restoration of Peter to ministry and also to his relationship to his Lord. So that's kind of a quick overview. And I know, I look at the time here, I've spent almost 18 minutes talking about this. Um, but I think it's helpful to, as you read the Gospel of John to see these things um, for yourself and to help you kind of have those things in your mind. So let's see some things that we can learn. And I want to open up actually with something that you read last week from John chapter one, because it opens up, John is using words and, and they're so perfectly placed. This is a sign of inspiration, by the way, a fruit of inspiration of this by the spirit is that these words are so carefully chosen and placed in the, in the, in the relationship they are to give us a proper understanding of the fact that, there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. And, and John beautifully lays that out here in these, these verses, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's talk here about the prologue to John's gospel here, John 1, 1 through 5, and I want to read from J.C. Ryle. This is really good stuff. He says this, The gospel of John, which begins with these verses, is in many respects very unlike the other three gospels. It contains many things which they omit. It omits many things which they contain. Good reason might easily be shown for this unlikeness, but it is enough to remember that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote under the direct inspiration of God. 
In the general plan of their respective Gospels, and in the particular details, in everything that they record, and in everything that they do not record, they were all four equally and entirely guided by the Holy Spirit. About the matters which John was specially inspired to relate in his Gospel, one general remark will suffice. The things which are peculiar to his gospel are among the most precious possessions of the Church of Christ. No one of the four gospel writers has given us such full statements about the divinity of Christ, about justification by faith, about the offices of Christ, about the work of the Holy Spirit, and about the privileges of believers, as we read in the pages of John. On none of these great subjects, undoubtedly, have Matthew, Mark, and Luke been silent. But in John's gospel, they stand out prominently on the surface, so that he who runs may read. The first five verses, the five verses now before us, excuse me, uh, contain a statement of matchless sublimity concerning the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. He it is beyond all question whom John means when he speaks of the word. No doubt there are heights and depths in that statement, which are far beyond man's understanding. And yet, there are plain lessons in it which every Christian would do well to treasure up in his mind. We learn, firstly, that our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word. He did not begin to exist when the heavens and the earth were made, much less did he begin to exist when the gospel was brought into the world. He had glory with the Father before the world was, John 17, 5. He was existing when matter was first created and before time began. He was before all things, Colossians 1.17. He was from all eternity. We learn secondly that our Lord Jesus Christ is a person distinct from God the Father and yet one with him. John tells us that the Word was with God. The Father and the Word, though two persons, are joined by an ineffable union. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, and yet their Godhead one. This is a great mystery. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. We learn thirdly that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God. John tells us that the Word was God. He is not merely a created angel or a being inferior to God the Father and invested by him with power to redeem sinners. He is nothing less than perfect God, equal to the Father as touching his Godhood, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds. We learn, fourthly, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. John tells us that by him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. So far from being a creature of God, as some heretics have falsely asserted, he is the being who made the worlds and all that they contain. He commanded and they were created. Psalm 148, verse 5. We learn lastly that the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of all spiritual life and light. John tells us that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the eternal fountain, from which alone the sons of men have ever derived life. Whatever spiritual life and light Adam and Eve possessed before the fall was from Christ. Whatever deliverance from sin and spiritual death any child of Adam has ever enjoyed since the fall, whatever light of conscience or understanding anyone has obtained, all has flowed from Christ. The vast majority of mankind in every age have refused to know him, have forgotten the fall and their own need of a savior. The light has been constantly shining in darkness. The most have not comprehended the light, but if any men and women out of the countless millions of mankind have ever had spiritual life and light, they have owed all to Christ. Such is a brief summary of the leading lessons which these wonderful verses appear to contain. There is much in them without controversy which is above our reason, but there is nothing contrary to it. There is much that we cannot explain and must be content humbly to believe. Let us, however, never forget that there are plain, practical consequences flowing from the passage, which we can never grasp too firmly or know too well. Would we know, for one thing, the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Let us often read these first five verses of John's Gospel. Let us mark what kind of being the Redeemer of mankind must needs be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners. 
If no one less than the eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world, sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men suppose. The right measure of sin's sinfulness is the dignity of him who came into the world to save sinners. If Christ is so great, then sin must indeed be sinful. Would we know for another thing the strength of a true Christian's foundation for hope? Let us often read these first five verses of John's Gospel. Let us mark that the Savior, in whom the believer is bid to trust, is nothing less than the eternal God, one able to save to the uttermost all that come to the Father by him. He that was with God and was God is also Emmanuel, God with us. Let us thank God that our help is laid on one that is mighty. Psalm eighty nine nineteen. In ourselves, we are great sinners, but in Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior. He is a strong foundation stone, able to bear the weight of a world's sin. He that believes on him shall not be confounded. 1 Peter 2, 6. That right there is a great introduction to the Gospel of John, isn't it? Um, he points out some some deep truths that honestly, um, Christians, you know, it, one of the things is that, that we sometimes think sometimes theology is so abstract and whatever, and sometimes it can feel very impractical. But it's very interesting that in the early history of the church, the first three or 400 years, do you know what they had to wrestle with? They had to wrestle with the question of who is Jesus Christ what is his relationship to God the Father and God the Spirit? And what is his relationship to us? And, and how does that all work together in the one person of Jesus Christ? And these verses right here, one through five, are at the forefront, aren't they, of this, <clears throat> this battle, so to speak, for, or this, uh, they're, they're right at the forefront in helping us grasp who this person is. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And J.C. Ryle here points out, Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is a person distinct from the Father and yet one with him. So as Christians, right, we don't believe as um, some, some uh, heretics and, and some heresies still teach us today that God is one person who can sometimes be the Father, sometimes be the Son, sometimes be the Holy Spirit. We say that Jesus Christ, the Son, is a person distinct from the Father, and yet they share the one divine being. So there's always been three persons, and the, but there's one being of God. Now, we may think that that doesn't matter, but actually it does matter. It does matter because only a triune God, a God who is one being and three persons, using the language that John gives us and that Scripture gives us, only that kind of God can save us by grace alone, through faith alone. If we get rid of this God, we have a different God, and we will end up, logically, if we follow through, probably arriving at a different way of salvation. Um, he also points out the Lord Jesus Christ is very God. He says the Word was God. He points out the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of all things and the source of all spiritual life and light. And he shows how this is the foundation for our spirit, for our faith and our hope. And um, I think that is so, so important for us. And I hope it gives you kind of a, a really good uh, opening way um, uh, to think about these things. Okay, let's now go to John chapter 3. And here it is with Jesus and uh, Nicodemus. Um, and I want to read to you here, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus um, about salvation and regeneration, the need to be born again. And um, here, uh, J.C. Ryle says this. I want to read to you the section, though, um, from John 3, the second half of his discussion with Nicodemus, verses 9 through 21. Um, J.C. Ryle says this. We have in these verses the second part of the conversation between our Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. A lesson about regeneration, which is talked about in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. Um, that's me they'll throw in. A lesson about regeneration, Ryle writes, is closely followed by a lesson about justification. The whole passage ought always to be read with affectionate reverence. It contains words which have brought eternal life to myriads of souls. 
And those words include, of course, John 3.16, those uh, beloved words. And here, I want to skip one section he has about this passage, but then go down here to this part. Um, So the first part he says is the first thing we learn is what gross spiritual ignorance there may be in the mind of a great and learned man. And we see Nicodemus, he just struggles to grasp these things. And apart from the Spirit of God, all of us struggle to grasp these spiritual truths. But then Raoul continues on talking about this passage of Scripture, and he says this, These verses show, secondly, the original source from which man's salvation springs. That source is the love of God the Father. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This wonderful wonderful verse has been justly called by Luther the Bible in miniature. No part of it, perhaps, is so deeply important as the first five words, God so loved the world. The love here spoken of is not that special love with which the Father regards his own elect, but that mighty pity and compassion with which he regards the whole race of mankind. Its object is not merely the little flock which he has given to Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners without any exception. There is a deep sense in which God loves that world. All whom he has created, he regards with pity and compassion. Their sins he cannot love, but he loves their souls. His tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. Christ is God's gracious gift to the whole world. Let us take heed that our views of the love of God are scriptural and well-defined. The subject is one on which error abounds on either side. On the one hand, we must beware of vague and exaggerated opinions. We must maintain firmly that God hates wickedness and that the end of all who persist in wickedness will be destruction. It is not true that God's love is lower than hell. It is not true that God so loved the world that all mankind will be finally saved, but that he so loved the world that he gave his son to be the savior of all who believe. He is, his love is offered to all men freely, fully, honestly, and unreservedly, but it is only through the one channel of Christ's redemption. He that rejects Christ cuts himself off from God's love and will perish everlastingly. On the other hand, we must beware of narrow and contracted opinions. We must not hesitate to tell any sinner that God loves him. It is not true that God cares for none but his own elect, or that Christ is not offered to any but those who are ordained to to eternal life. There is a kindness and love in God towards all mankind. It was in consequence of that love that Christ came into the world and died upon the cross. Let us not be wise above what above that which is written, or more systematic in our statements than Scripture itself. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not willing that any should perish. God would have all men to be saved. God loves the world. These verses show us, thirdly, the peculiar plan by which the love of God has provided salvation for sinners. That plan is the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. By being lifted up, our Lord meant nothing less than his own death upon the cross. That death, he would have us know, was appointed by God to be the life of the world. John 6.51 It was ordained from all eternity to be the great propitiation and satisfaction for man's sin. It was the payment by an almighty substitute and representative of man's enormous debt to God. When Christ died upon the cross, our many sins were laid upon him. He was made sin for us. He was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 3.13 By his death, he purchased pardon and complete redemption for sinners. The bronze serpent lifted up in the camp of Israel brought health and cure within the reach of all who were bitten by the snakes. Christ crucified in like manner brought eternal life within reach of lost mankind. Christ has been lifted up on the cross, on the cross, excuse me, and man looking to him by faith may be saved. The truth before us is the very foundation stone of the Christian religion. Christ's death is the Christian's life. Christ's cross is the Christian's title to heaven. 
Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter into the holiest and are at length landed in glory. It is true that we are sinners, but Christ has suffered for us. It is true that we deserve death, but Christ has died for us. It is true that we are guilty debtors, but Christ has paid our debt with his own blood. This is the real gospel. This is the good news. On this, let us lean while we live. To this, let us cling when we die. Christ has been lifted up on the cross and has thrown open the gates of heaven to all believers. These verses show fourthly the way in which the benefits of Christ's death are made our own. That way is simply to put faith and trust in Christ. Faith is the same thing as believing. Three times our Lord repeated this glorious truth to Nicodemus. Twice he proclaims that whoever believes shall not perish. Once he says, he that believes on the Son of God is not condemned. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the very key of salvation. He that has it has life, and he that has it not has not life. Nothing whatever beside this faith is necessary to complete justification, but nothing whatever except this faith will give us an interest in Christ. We may fast and mourn for sin and do many things that are right and use religious ordinances and give all our goods to feed the poor and yet remain unpardoned and lose our souls. But if we will only come to Christ as guilty sinners and believe on him, our sins shall at once be forgiven and our iniquities shall be entirely put away. Without faith, there is no salvation, but through faith in Jesus, the vilest sinner may be saved. If we would have a peaceful conscience in our religion, let us see that our views of saving faith are distinct and clear. Let us beware of supposing that justifying faith is anything more than a simple sinner's simple trust in a Savior, the grasp of a drowning man on the hand held out for his relief. Let us beware of mingling anything else with faith in the matter of justification. Here, we must always remember faith stands entirely alone. A justified man, no doubt, will always be a holy man. True believing will always be accompanied by godly living. But that which gives a man a saving interest in Christ is not his living, but his faith. If we would know whether our faith is genuine, we do well to ask ourselves how we are living. But if we would know know whether we are justified by Christ, there is but one question to be asked. That question is, do we believe? Um, This right here, I want to stop right there for a second. This is so good because um, J.C. Rowell here is preaching the gospel to us because Christ is preaching the gospel to Nicodemus here. And um, highlighting, of course, notice, notice the motive of love. Love flows from the heart of God the Father in love to an evil, devilish, sin-filled world. And he gives his son. This is the, he says, the plan of salvation is Christ. Christ is the plan. Um, Christ Jesus being lifted up for salvation as a, as a curse and as being made sin for us, that is our salvation. And the way that we receive this, and he hammers this, and this is, this is the key why we're Protestants. We are, uh, as, as, as Baptists here at MMBC, we are unashamedly committed to this truth of the Protestant Reformation which we share with um, our brothers and sisters, the Lutherans, um, you know, Presbyterians or Reformed folk, um, Methodists who believe this, other people who believe this, uh, maybe uh, conservative Episcopalians or other people like that, because there are other denominations that don't believe this. They believe that in order for, you, for Christ's cross and what he did to save you, you have to believe and do other stuff. It's faith maybe plus works, faith plus sorrow, faith plus this, faith plus that. The minute you add the plus, faith is no longer alone. And we believe that we are saved, accepted, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. 
Now, as Ryle points out, if we have believed in Jesus Christ, we will then live a holy life out of gratitude for great grace received. But that life that we live of faith, the life and the good works that we do, the sorrow for sin, uh, fasting, whatever it may be, good things, but they are never the means by which we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. We do nothing but look to him and rest in his promises to us and receive him as he's offered to us in the gospel. We simply look up to the cross and trust that he's there for us. That's it. And that's why we at MNBC, that's why we are so grateful for grace alone, right? That's what we believe. That's what we preach. And so we tell sinners, we tell them, believe, believe, believe upon Jesus Christ. He is a great savior. So lastly, here under this section here, I want to read one more section here under the John 3 part, because it's very good. He says, these verses show us lastly, the true cause of the loss of man's soul. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The words before us form a suitable conclusion to the glorious tidings which we have been considering. They completely clear God of injustice in the condemnation of sinners. They show in simple and unmistakable terms that although man's salvation is entirely of God, his ruin, if he is lost, will be entirely from himself. He will reap the fruit of his own sowing. The doctrine here laid down ought to be carefully remembered. It supplies an answer to a common cavil of the enemies of God's truth. There is no decreed reprobation in excluding anyone from heaven. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There is no unwillingness on God's part to receive any sinner, however great his sins. God has sent light into the world, and if man will not come to the light, the fault is entirely on man's side. His blood will be on his own head if he makes shipwreck of his soul. The blame will be at his own door if he misses heaven. His eternal misery will be the result of his own choice. His destruction will be the work of his own hand. God loved him and was willing to save him. Out of lo- out, out he loved darkness, and therefore darkness must be his everlasting. Maybe that maybe that maybe there's a typo in this thing here. But he loved darkness, and therefore darkness must be his everlasting portion. He would not come to Christ. And therefore, he could not have life. John five forty. The truths we have been considering are weighty, are peculiarly weighty and solemn. Do we live as if we believed them? Salvation by Christ's death is close to us today. Have we embraced it by faith and made it our own? Let us never rest until we know Christ as our own Savior. Let us look to him without delay for pardon and peace, if we have never looked before. Let us go on believing on him. If we have already believed, whoever is his own gracious word, whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a good way to wrap up. And it's a good reminder to us that um, it reminds me of uh, that, that very solemn passage um, uh, uh, is it from uh well, maybe not that, but um, never mind that. But uh, the point is, is that men's condemnation, the condemnation of men, um, ultimately our sin, God is not the author of sin or the approver of sin. He tells us that. And so mankind cannot blame God in the matter of redemption. God has offered them Christ. He's offered them his son. He has promised them that if they will receive him and look to him, they will be saved. And as John writes in this gospel, it is because they love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And this is the way it was in Jesus' time. This is the way it has always worked. And this is why we, uh, we want to warn people. We want to warn people because we, we want them to come to Christ and we want them to see that if they go to judgment and they go without Christ, they have no one to blame but themselves. 
They have no one to blame. They have every right now to believe upon Jesus Christ and be saved. If they go to hell and they go to judgment apart from Jesus Christ, then I, I want, solemnly we say their their blood is on their own head. Their the own their um the their blood is on their own head heads or hands. However, you would say that, I guess. But you understand what I'm saying. Um, and we want them to know that available for them right now is the full, sufficient, free-offered Christ to us. We want to impress upon them because we love sinners and we want them to know this Savior because he offers himself to them fully and unreservedly. Okay, so I've got a couple more readings here, but I'm only going to probably do one um, because, yeah, let's see here. What do I got here? Um, Let's do, uh, I'll do real quick here. I'll just read for you real quick, uh, give you a quick outline before I close with something else. So another thing later on in John chapter five, right? Jesus is teaching and um, there's some verses, particularly uh, J.C. Rell here writes about the dignity and greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 5, verses 16 through 23, right? Jesus is talking with the Jews, and um, he, he writes about the dignity and the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because remember, the Jews realized when Jesus is calling himself his son and talk, the way he's talking, um, that he's making God his father and making himself equal with God. It's very interesting um, that they understood Jesus is saying, I am of the same nature and essence as God. Um, So this was scandalous. And so uh, Ryle says, first of all, that he asserts his own unity with the Father. Um, And he, he, right, and that's so true, right? They are two persons, but one God. He asserts in the next place his own divine power to give life. He says the Son gives life to whom he will. Uh, Ryle continues, he asserts in the last place his own authority to judge the world. The Father, we are told, has committed all judgment unto the Son. And so, highlighting to us, Jesus there is highlighting his greatness, his glory there, and some very important passages, again, that are necessary to our understanding of who God is as the triune God of Scripture. And then lastly, so chapter five there, we got chapter four we didn't talk about. And this is where I told you there's so much good stuff. Um, The woman at the well, uh, one of the best stories in the Bible. Um, We're just not going to be able to do it. Um, But uh, chapter six, um, Jesus breaks the bread, feeds the 5,000, and then gives one of the most uh, controversial and yet powerful uh, sermons, so to speak, um, in the latter part of chapter 6, which forces many people to uh, stop walking with him anymore, he starts telling them that they have no life in them if they do not eat and drink him. He says that, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And uh, he also tells them uh, that um, apart from the power of the Father, they are unable to come to him. And they're offended at this statement. Um, they're offended at this. Uh, Jesus uh, says these kinds of things um, that are offensive, and people start grumbling about them, and they turn away because they don't want to follow Jesus anymore because he says some hard things. And uh, here in John 6, uh, Jesus here speaking to the crowd. This is from J.C. Ryle again, but John 6, verses 35 through uh, 40, where Jesus here says, I am the bread of life right? Um, all that the, he eventually says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out um, those verses like that. So I want to close here with J.C. Ryle as Jesus here is speaking to the crowd. He says this, three of our Lord Jesus Christ's great sayings are strung together like pearls in this message. Each of them ought to be precious to every true Christian. All taken together, they form a mine of truth into which he that searches need never search in vain. We have first in these verses a saying of Christ about himself. We read that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Our Lord would have us know that he himself is the appointed food of man's soul. The soul of every man is naturally starving and famishing through sin. Christ is given by God the Father to be the satisfier, the reliever, and the physician of man's spiritual need. 
in him and his mediatorial office, in him and his atoning death, in him and his priesthood, and him and his grace, love, and power. In him alone will empty souls find their needs supplied. In him there is life. He is the bread of life. With what divine and perfect wisdom wisdom this name is chosen? Bread is necessary food. We can manage tolerably well without many things on our table, but not without bread. So it is with Christ. We must have Christ or die in our own sins. Bread is food that suits all. Some cannot eat meat and some cannot eat vegetables, but all like bread. It is food both for the queen and the pauper. So it is with Christ. He is just the Savior that meets the needs of every class. Bread is food that we need daily. Other kinds of food we, may, we take, perhaps only occasionally, but we need bread every morning and evening in our lives. So it is with Christ. There is no day in our lives, but we need his blood, his righteousness, his intercession, and his grace. Well, may he be called the bread of life. Do we know anything of spiritual hunger? Do we feel anything of craving and emptiness in conscience, heart, and affections? Let us distinctly understand that Christ alone can relieve and supply us, and that it is his office to relieve. We must come to him by faith. We must believe on him and commit our souls into his hands. So coming, he pledges his royal word. We shall find lasting satisfaction both for time and eternity. It is written, he that comes unto me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Uh, Powerful stuff there, I think, about Jesus Christ being the bread of life. Um, here and, and, and Ryle continues later on, I'll just kind of summarize here for you. He says that it talks about how Christ, uh, uh, all those who come to Christ are, are never rejected, never cast out. Um, it's the will of the Father that everyone who sees the Son may have everlasting life, and Christ will never let one of the souls that is committed to Him fall away. He is a perfect, complete, sufficient, final, everlasting all-complete Savior. What a great Savior we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, thank you for listening to this. I hope it's been helpful to you and uh, you're excited to read through the Gospel of John. Um, I hope it's edifying. And uh, keep reading. Next week we'll be together uh, beginning in chapter 8. The Gospel of John just keeps getting better and better, or as some people might say, gooder and gooder. So thanks so much for listening. It's so good to be with you. Take care. And God bless.